Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's go to God in prayer before we go to His Word. Our Father and our God, we thank You for this great privilege You've given us this morning to gather in Your presence as Your people, as Your children, to worship You, the God of the universe. Uh, We were made for this. And while we rebelled against You and walked away, You did not leave us in our rebellion that only leads to destruction, but at great cost to Yourself, You have redeemed us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And You have made us Your own giving us your spirit to indwell us and adopting us in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, as your children, as your servants, as your worshipers, we come to you this morning uh, looking to you for that bread of life, your word that instructs us as to how we ought to live in this world as your people so that our lives may bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even through us, you would be pleased to draw people to yourself so that one day we will all be part of that great multitude that will stand before you from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping you. God of the universe, and your Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Teach us this morning by your Spirit, for we ask in the name of your Son. Amen. I usually don't have to explain my sermon titles. They're all straightforward, but I feel compelled to explain this today. Uh, when you speak of a goat when you're from Scripture, it could be a real goat. Uh, but we are not speaking of real goats this morning, but uh, the, more, uh, the, the recent expression of greatest of all time. So we're going to start our sermon with some sports trivia. I am not apostatized from the faith. Uh, trust me, there's a, there's a point to this. Uh, so who is the GOAT when it comes to NFL quarterbacks? Brady. Brady. Agreement. Wow, look at that. Uh, see, I was, oh, I was waiting to hear that. Some California guy over there. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, how about among NBA players? Do we have a goat? Uh, more disagreement, uh, dispute this morning uh, in the second service. The first service, everybody was uh, in agreement. There was Jordan, but I hear different names now. Um, <laughs> how about golf? That's, yeah, those two names came up this morning as well. And among gymnasts? Yes, there was agreement this morning. Uh, when it comes to sports, that idea of greatest of all time somehow makes sense. You know, they want to excel in their sport. But when it comes to team events, sometimes, as I'm sure Scotty Pippen would say, uh, somebody is goat at the expense of the team or uh, others. So even in sports, it's not always appropriate to speak of the greatest. Uh, but this question appears even more inappropriate uh, or do you actually have a, f- do you think someone is the greatest among Jesus' disciples? No, no, we, we can't really speak of the greatest among disciples or greatest preacher or evangelist because uh, those who excel in the service of the Lord don't do so by their own strength, but by the Spirit and by God's enablement, by God's grace. So asking of who's the greatest of disciples doesn't make sense, but it didn't stop the disciples from asking that question. 
because they do so, as we heard in our reading this morning. So this morning, again, we are in Mark, the third section, where Jesus makes his way from uh, where he is now, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is even north of Galilee, and he will make his way down to Jerusalem. Uh, so while he's making his way, this journey is, is not just a geographical uh, a travel uh, travelogue, but it's actually uh, a journey in, the, in, in, in discipleship, as Jesus instructs his disciples what it means to follow him as one who was denying himself and was going to bear his cross for our sake. So we do well to pay instruction to Jesus' instruction uh, to his disciples, because these are instructions for us as well, for we too are disciples. Uh, Mark has put this section together in such a way that uh, this whole journey section from northern Galilee uh, or north of Galilee to Jerusalem uh, is told within, uh, the sto- between the stories of uh, the healing of two blind men. We saw already in chapter 8, 22 to 26, where uh, this blind man uh, is healed by Jesus in two stages. At the first stage, he sees, but he only sees as though uh, people were trees, and then at the second touch, he's able to see clearly. And then at the end of the, uh, this section in chapter 10, 46 to 52, we encounter another blind man named Bartimaeus who acknowledges Jesus as who he is. He, he cries out to Jesus, the son of David. He, he has faith that Jesus could heal him, and when Jesus heals him, he follows Jesus. Uh, Mark bookends this account with his two healing of the, the, these accounts of the healing of the blind men because, uh, like these blind men, the disciples are blind as well. Not physically blind, but blind to who Jesus was and what it meant to follow him. And the question for us, and the question that Mark poses through this uh, structure, is that will the disciples be healed of their blindness? Will they only see partially as though they see as men were trees? Or will they see fully like Bartimaeus did and follow after Jesus? Our section follows uh, Jesus, as we, saw, as we saw in that slide, uh, will predict three times about his passion, about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. But every time he speaks of that, the disciples respond with great incomprehension. We already saw that in the first prediction in chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, and that comes right after Peter's great confession about the central question of this passage. Who am I? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks, and and Peter rightly confesses, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, as the Christ, he will be handed over, he will suffer, he will die. And that goes completely against Peter's paradigm of who the Christ ought to be. The Christ is the one, in, in Peter's expectation, who would inflict punishment, suffering on his enemies, not one who would suffer at the hands of his enemies. And Peter takes Jesus aside, this Jesus whom he had just confessed as the Messiah, the Christ, and rebukes him. And Jesus in turn rebukes him and his other disciples with what seems to be very harsh words to us, uh, but they are true words. Get behind me, Satan, because Satan's expe- uh, Peter's expectations were more aligned with Satan than with uh, what God has intended for Jesus, for his Messiah, for, for the Christ. So we come to the second uh, prediction of his suffering today. And uh, again, we see the incomprehension of the disciples. Please turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 9. We'll look at 30 to 37. First, Jesus predicts his passion again in verses 30 and 31. And we see the incomprehension of 
the disciples in 32 to 34, not in words, but through silence. At least not words spoken to Jesus. And then Jesus instructs them on what it means to be his disciple. Instructions that we ought to hear as well. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. We read, They went from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. They went on from there, from where? Uh, They were in the region of Caesarea Philippi, north of Galilee, uh, where Jesus had ascended to the mountain and was transfigured before them. And then after coming down, he had uh, driven out the demon uh, from this young boy that the disciples were unable to do because they had not relied on Jesus, but instead on their own power, which they did not have, and they had failed. And Jesus instructs them that it is through prayer, through dependence on him, that they would be able to do the things that he has called them to do, the things they should have been able to do if they had only relied on Jesus. So from that region, from north of Galilee, uh, they make their way down toward Jerusalem, but they pass through familiar territory. We'll discover soon that they're actually in Capernaum. But Jesus uh, goes on, uh, and he doesn't want uh, anyone to know about his presence there, because this, we are told, for he was teaching his disciples. This was the time for instructing his disciples. The time for his departure had come. The mission of the kingdom that which he will inaugurate would be carried on in the proclamation of his disciples, and he needed to prepare them for that. And uh, that is the task that he has entrusted, not the, the climber of the crowds uh, who follow after him for signs and wonders, but not f- out of faith. And what was Jesus teaching them? Mark uses language that uh, suggests repeated teaching, and he summarizes the teaching in this last sentence. The, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Jesus uses the title for himself that he has used before, the Son of Man. We have seen that previously, that it is uh, a title that recalls uh, the prophecy of Daniel, where one like the Son of Man will appear before the Ancient of Days, and to him is given all authority forever. And that's the charge on which Jesus will be eventually crucified for claiming to be the Son of Man of Daniel. Uh, but here uh, you see the incongruity of this one, the Son of Man, to whom all authority, eternal authority, is given. He now says that he will suffer. That doesn't seem right. One who has all authority uh, will, will suffer and he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him? Uh, Mark, this is the, 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 the brief, uh, very brief among the three uh, predictions that we have. Uh, but even here, uh, Mark introduces a new theme that is he would be handed over, um, delivered into the hands that the word there is handed over we've already seen someone who was handed over in chapter one we were told that john the baptist would be handed over and this is the first of three times we were told that jesus will be handed over and then later on we are told in chapter 13 that those who are followers of jesus they will be handed over to the authorities so who is doing the handing over uh well it could be judas because the same word is used of betrayal judas handed over jesus to his enemies and then the the jewish leaders hand over Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate hands over Jesus to be crucified, but behind all of these handing overs is God himself, who hands over his son, even as Isaiah predicted of uh, 
the suffering servant, that he would be handed over by God. But even as Isaiah prophesied that God would vindicate his suffering servant, so also here Jesus says, this son will be handed over, uh, but God will raise him from the dead. But these people who are handing over Jesus, whether it's Judas or the Jewish leaders or Pilate, they remain responsible for their evil action, even though that through their evil action, God still accomplishes his purposes of destroying uh, the works of the devil and defeating death and defeating sin uh, in the handing over in the death of Jesus. uh, And God will win the victory by raising him from the dead. Someone pointed out that uh, John the Baptist preached and he was handed over. Jesus preached and he was handed over. And the followers of Jesus will preach and they will be handed over. And I thought, man, this preaching is... uh, Dangerous work. <laughs> uh, and we see the response of the disciples. Uh, we are told they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Uh, Twice we are told that the disciples were silent. First time we are told they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him why. What was so difficult to comprehend about those very simple words? They're pretty straightforward. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they were killed. It's not the language that's the problem. There's another problem as to why they didn't comprehend. Uh, Their expectation of the Messiah was different from what Jesus was saying was going to be the mission of the Messiah. Their expectation of the Messiah was that he would be the one who conquers their enemies. But here Jesus is saying that he would be handed over and be killed by his enemies. Yes, he says that he will be raised. But for them, the idea of resurrection was that something that God will do at the end of time, not during time, and not for an individual. So neither understand the death of the Messiah nor a resurrection in time. And perhaps they are silent because they are confused. Uh, There could be other reasons as well. Uh, Last time they said something when Jesus announced uh, his death through the mouth of Peter. Jesus rebuked them. Very harsh, severe rebuke. And maybe they don't want to get rebuked again. And they said, just don't say anything. Or maybe uh, the power of sin is so great that uh, uh, it it corrupts uh, or it veils God's revelation of his plans that we would are willing to do only what we think God ought to do, and uh, we remain silent when we don't want to hear what God has to say to us. Maybe if we don't say anything, maybe if we don't ask any questions, maybe it won't happen. I was reminded of this Farsight cartoon. I love Farsight, where this man is telling his dog what to do and what not to do, and the dog only hears blah 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 blah. Uh, these disciples seemed to be like that where they didn't understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask. And they came to Capernaum, which has been home base, and still making their way down to Jerusalem. And he was in the house, maybe Peter's house. Uh, and he asked them, notice they didn't ask him, but he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? He asked not because he doesn't know, but because he knows what, he, what they were talking about, what they were discussing on the way. But notice that word, on the way, uh, that's a technical term. On the way, it's the way of the cross. 
Jesus is on the way of the cross, headed from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem, uh, where he would deny himself, take his cross, suffer at the hands of his enemies and die. On the way to the cross, where he is humbling himself, where he is becoming the least of all, where he will be crucified, where he will die, the one who is Lord, the one who is Christ, the one who is the Son of Man, what were they doing on the way? Well, before we find out what they were, what they were talking about, we, so we are told again that they kept silent. Again, silent treatment. But this time not because of any misunderstanding, but probably because of shame. See, they had succumbed to the, the, the world's uh, allure, the symbols of prestige and honor. And we, we will think, you know, how, this is crass. How could they be asking about uh, who is greatest? Uh, but they lived in a society where honor and shame and position and status mattered. And if we are honest, it matters for us as well. If we would only see our social media accounts, our virtue signaling and seeking attention and acclaim. But they recognized that they were headed in the exactly opposite direction of where he was headed. He was headed into the path of humbling himself even to the death on the cross they were going full speed ahead, or at least seeking to, for a place of self-exaltation. So they kept silent. Because we are told, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Uh, that's the cultural norm, seeking, jockeying for position, seeking status, uh, seeking honor. That's the, that's the way of the world. Uh, others would say that they're doing the right thing. You know, they had just confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And Jesus said that the confession was right. Well, what was the Christ supposed to do in their expectation? He was supposed to come and set up the kingdom of God. So we are headed to Jerusalem and the key is going to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Well, if the kingdom of God is coming and we are followers of the king, well, the next thing to do is what kind of position, what role in the kingdom will we have? Who's going to be the secretary of state? Who's going to be the uh, treasury secretary? What are the positions that are open and who's going to get what? And what Jesus had said has not registered yet. So they do not live according to the ways of the kingdom of God, the ways that Jesus shows what value and honor and status means in the kingdom, but instead they walk in the ways of the world, seeking honor and status for oneself and disputing with others if it means getting a better position than them. Jesus doesn't reject people who do not understand him, people who uh, don't seem to follow after his ways, if he had called them, so he teaches them. And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, um, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and and put him in the midst of them, and, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Uh, two sayings of Jesus here, uh, and it involves a child. But every time, you know, we see Jesus and the child, we kind of uh, romanticize that story of uh, sweet Jesus with the babies. Uh, uh, this is Jesus with the child, but what the child means in the story is very different from what uh, Western notion of children and innocence and so on. What we have in this story is a, is a radical countercultural call to following after Jesus, uh, 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 one that requires renouncing this pursuit of status and honor, or at least pursuing a status and honor that God 
sees as status and honor. He sat down. It's the posture of teaching. And we are told he doesn't get up till chapter 10, verse 1. Um, and, uh, and he calls the 12. He called them way back, but he keeps calling them again because they keep going in the wrong direction. But his calling is irrevocable as a set of the calling of God. So he calls them back. They can't hide from Jesus from their silence. right? You think, if I keep quiet, maybe you wouldn't know, but our lives are open before God. So he knows, and I'm, I'm sure they were frustrated, like, can't stop this man from knowing anything. You know, we do that in, in confession as well. You know, in confession, it's not an occasion to explain our sin to God or to hide things from him. Confession is agreeing with a God who already knows what we have done. And we, we are told that uh, he sat him down, uh, or he sat, he sat down, and, and he called them, and he said to them, uh, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What is high status before God? What does it mean to be first with God? To be first with God, one has to be last of all. That goes completely against what we learn from childhood. Jockey for position, get to the top, work hard, make your way, kick somebody down on the way if you have to. But Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he has to be last of all. And what does it mean to be last of all? He explains it by saying that one must be servant of all. Uh, that word is the one uh, we get deacon from, diakonos. Uh, but Jesus is not speaking of a ministry role. Jesus is speaking of being a servant. That's what the word means. And the diakonos, the servant, is usually uh, one who waits on tables. Uh, he's the lowest of all servants. He has to wait till everybody else has eaten, even after the other servants has eaten, have eaten before he can eat. And Jesus calls his disciples to be that, the, the least. Why? Because they are followers of Jesus. And he is the one who is first, who has become last of all, even as we heard read in that passage that uh, uh, was read for us in Philippians chapter 2, that David read for us. He who was in the form of God. It is that one who took not only the, the form of a man, but the form of a slave, and not just any slave, but a slave who dies the worst kind of death anyone could die, is death on a cross. That's how he lowered himself. Become last of all for our sake. And if we are his followers, we can only follow him if we do what he does, is to be last of all. Jesus gives the exhortation first, and then he gives the illustration. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and, and took him in his arms. Uh, when we think of children, we think of them as, you know, innocent ones. We even speak of age of accountability, and I don't know where we get that, because I think little babies can sin when they scream their head off. Actually, Augustine speaks of a, a, a child who was well-nursed, fully fed, and that child saw another child being fed, and immediately started screaming, because of jealousy that, they, that, <laughs> that another child was... But that's not the point. The point is here, uh, the, the child was in that culture one who had no social status. One who had no rights of his own. One who really had added no value to the family or to the community unless they, age, they reached the age of an apprenticeship where they could actually be productive. A father could... Uh, uh, if, if they expected a boy and they had a girl, could leave the girl out, or if the child was disabled in some ways, could leave the child out to die. And 
would not be held accountable for that because the child was expendable. So that child symbolizes all those who had no status in society, those who were weak, those who were vulnerable, those who were poor, the, those who were orphans, those who were widows, those who were uh, foreigners in their midst, uh, the ones with whom one normally does not associate, the ones with whom Jesus always seemed to associate and was always rebuked by the Jewish authorities because he, 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 sought, he claimed to be the one, to be the Messiah, highest status of all, but associating with those who had no status at all in those who even in, in, in the religious realm. And he says, to the, he said to them, whoever receives one such child, that is one who has no status. So the child here represents not only children who have no status, but all like the child who have no status in society. And Jesus says, whoever receives, that is welcomes such a child in his name, that is for the sake of Jesus, receives Jesus himself. And not just receives Jesus, whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Welcome those with no social status. No prestige will be conveyed, will be bestowed upon you by welcoming these. That's, all, that's who we usually associate with, right? People will bestow some value on us by uh, associating with them. Jesus says, uh, associate with those who may actually cause you a loss of honor, loss of status because you're associating yourself with them. But that's the way of discipleship. That's the way of following after the one who, for our sake, became as one who had no status. That's, what, that's the kind of people they put on a cross. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified, but slaves could be. And that's the form that he took. So this is the same as what he said previously in his prediction. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That same word said differently is if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It prepares us for what he would say in 1045. Even the son of man, even the son of man, the one who has all status, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, He's the servant of all. And if we are following him, he calls us to the same kind of... uh, status rejection that uh, he has taken on. That's a hard call. Because all of us are wired for seeking status, not denouncing the status we already have, and that for the sake of someone else. To lift them up. What would it take for us to follow after Jesus, to be last, to be servant of all? Uh, It requires two things. It requires humility. It requires hospitality. Humility, uh, Andrew Murray, who wrote a book on humility over 100 years ago, still very popular, still in print, he said, uh, what Adam lost by pride, Jesus recovered through humility. Adam and Eve in the garden uh, had great honor. They were creatures of God made in his image, uh, had fellowship with God, but they were not satisfied. In pride, they wanted to be like God. They uh, they wanted to know for themselves instead of depending uh, on God to know what is good and what is evil. They wanted to uh, find out for themselves what is good and evil and they attempted and the world is the way it is. But it was through pride that we fell. And we see that continuing on in Genesis chapter 11, there's this great project of building a tower. Why did they do that? Uh, author of Genesis tells us that 
they, could, they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be the greatest. That's not the way one becomes great. We are told in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. Greatness is always something that's bestowed upon us by God, not something we attain for ourselves. We also see humility um, before we come to Jesus himself as the paradigm of humility. Uh, we have Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, in Numbers chapter 12, Jesus, uh, uh, Moses, as the author of the Pentateuch, he says about himself, now Moses was the most humble man. <laughs> he was like, man, how, if you're humble, how could you say that about yourself? Well, when you come to Jesus, Jesus say that, says that about himself. I am meek and I am gentle. I'm humble and I'm gentle. You're so, you're, we are supposed to be able to say that we are humble because God requires that of us. Uh, maybe it's because we don't have a good definition of what humility is. Uh, some, someone said humility is not uh, thinking less of oneself, but thinking of oneself less helpful, but not sufficient. Um, I can't, I don't usually say this, you know why in a minute, but I wrote a dissertation on humility. So I can't go around telling people that I'm an expert on humility. Uh, <laughs> while writing that, I used to think, you know, maybe I'll be more humble if that gets, this gets rejected and they get dropped from the program. Uh, that's probably more humbling than writing a dissertation on humility. But anyway, uh, I had to define humility uh, in order to be able to, um, to, to work on the research. Uh, Humility, I define this, and others have agreed here, so I agreed with others, is that it's a truthful assessment of oneself that is expressed in denying oneself for the sake of the other. Humility is a truthful assessment of oneself that is expressed in the denying of oneself for the sake of the other. That definition makes sense when you uh, contrast that with pride. Pride is a false assessment of oneself that is expressed in exalting one at the expense of the other, right? So humility is an inward disposition for sure, but it's not just an inward disposition of a truthful assessment of oneself, but it is also a truthful assessment of oneself that's expressed outwardly in how we treat others, denying ourselves for the sake of the other. Uh, see, this definition makes room for what Scripture reveals, that God himself is humble. So when we think of humility we, of ourselves, we can think that well, you know, of course we ought to be humble. We are creatures, we are sinful creatures of that. But how can we speak of God as humble? He's neither sinful nor a creature. Well, if humility is a truthful assessment of oneself, God's assessment of who he is will be different from our assessment of who we are. But for both God and us, if we truly assess ourselves for who we are, for God knowing who he is, what did he do? For our sake, in the person of his son, he humbled himself to exalt us. And we, a truthful assessment of ourselves as believers, includes the fact that we are creatures, we are sinful ones of that, and we have been redeemed from, by Christ so that we no longer have to live for ourselves. But because in Christ uh, we have been given the status that no one else can give, that we can never accomplish, that we are the children of God, we have been freed to serve in whatever ways. We have been freed, we are freed to be the last because in Jesus, we are already God's children. There's nothing we can do to accomplish or attain that's greater than that. Well, God is like that. We are told in Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What does he say about himself? I dwell in high and holy place, 
and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God who dwells on high also dwells with the lowly. And no wonder his son is the same way. Have, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that word though could also be translated because. Because he was in the form of God, what did he do? He did something what God does, which is he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, to be held on, but emptied himself for our sake by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's not what we think God should do, but that's exactly what God does because his truthful assessment of himself as being God is expressed in his service of giving himself as a sacrifice. If that's not enough, Matthew 11, Jesus says that himself. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Uh, When someone has such power, what do you expect them to say next? Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly. The one who has all power and all authority is the one who describes himself as gentle and lowly. And if we were not, to, if you're not going to believe his words, he shows it in action in John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hand, and that he has come from God and was going back to God. God has given all things into his hand. He, all authority, all power, forever is in his hands. What would you expect a person with such position and power and authority to do next? Order someone to come and wash his feet. But instead what he does... He says, he, laid aside, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. That's who he is. The one who is first became last of all. So and that for our sake. And if we are his followers, we are called to do the same. So what we heard in 730 to 37 is no surprise. Uh, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So humility is an attribute of God himself. It has been revealed fully, perfectly, personally in Jesus himself. And uh, God therefore requires it of his people. If we are a people in whom his image is being restored, uh, we are being conformed to the, uh, to the image of our Lord Jesus, then uh, the way we, in, by being yielded to the Spirit, is that allow him, because he has already made us something we can never be, allow us, allow ourselves to humble ourselves before uh, and uh, for the sake of the others. So humility is a relational attribute. We humble ourselves before God. We humble ourselves before uh, one another, and even before the world that opposes us, even as our Lord Jesus handed himself over to the enemies. And what we are told is God gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud. Imagine having God opposed to us. But he gives grace to the humble. And, and Luther says that... Uh, Uh, Because we don't humble ourselves, and God gives grace only to the humble, God humbles us so that he may give us grace. Uh, That's how great a God we have that uh, we will be, we sang about and we'll sing again. So, you may be worried and say, what if I humble myself for the sake of the other, uh, deny myself for the sake of the other, who's going to look out for me? In the family of Christ, we do that for each other. So I can freely humble myself for the sake of the other, uh, because my brother is going to humble himself and look out for my interests. So my interest is not lost. My interest is that I don't have to look for them myself. Somebody else is going to do that for me, even as I am freed up to do that for ourselves, for others. 
when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we are free to humble ourselves toward one another. But humility is also expressed in hospitality, as we will see soon as we come to this table, which uh, demonstrates both the humility of God and the hospitality of God, that He welcomes us, that He welcomes us <laughs> to His table. Um, so hospitality is welcoming people uh, to ourselves, and we do that, right? We do that. We, we are generally hospitable people, but uh, Jesus expands our understanding of what, is means, what it means to, to be hospitable. Of course, if Jesus shows up, we will say, uh, Jesus, please come to my house and sup with me. But Jesus doesn't come to us as Jesus, the exalted one. Jesus comes to us as the one who has no status. And the question is, will we welcome him? Because in welcoming the people with no status is how we welcome Jesus. He says that himself. Because if you receive this child, that's what it means to receive a child, you receive me. So if you want to receive Jesus, you have to welcome those with no status. We have no rights, who are the least amongst us. He says that again in Matthew chapter 25. Um, who, we, who, we, who do we usually, um, to whom do we show hospitality? We, we we do that sometimes with the people we want to show the love of Christ, we want to reach for Christ, but quite often our hospitality um, is toward those uh, who confer honor upon us. You know, by associating with people like that, we ourselves gain some status. Uh, we start that in childhood. You know, we want to sit in the ta- on the, at the table with the popular kids. Uh, who wants to sit with the nobodies? We want to be with those who are honored by the world, who seem to matter in the eyes of the world. But if we are followers of Jesus, um, then we can't follow the ways of the world, the poor, the widows, the orphans, the, the foreigners in our midst, the people who with low-end jobs, uh, who we think are open to our despise, the homeless. Uh, those are the people that Jesus seems to suggest that we ought to welcome, because in welcoming them, um, we gain no status, but really, we do, actually, what, what Jesus said, because in receiving them, who do we receive? Jesus himself. Is there anyone with greater honor that you can associate yourself with than Jesus? And not just Jesus, but in welcoming these people, you receive Jesus, but not just Jesus, but his Father. God himself is present to us through these people. So in welcoming them, it's actually a privilege that is bestowed upon us. We receive Jesus and the Father. Uh, We receive God's presence in welcoming the least among us and associating with those uh, who have no honor in the eyes of the world. Why? Because hospitality is rooted in God's nature. You see that within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit are are perfectly welcoming one another. And they extend it to us. Who are we? We have no honor that we can bestow upon God, but God has welcomed us to be not just people he acknowledges from a distance, but as his children, as his family. Um, and that's who God is, and that's if we belong to him, uh, then uh, God in his humility has welcomed us to be his own, and has been hospitable to us, then we ought to be the same. But God not only extends hospitality, God receives hospitality from people that have no status. We see that all the way up in Genesis chapter 18 where uh, God receives hospitality from Abraham. And Jesus in the Gospels is always at the house of people that the religious establishment doesn't approve. 
enjoying their hospitality, enjoying their feasts. Uh, on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, these two confused disciples invite him to be with them because it's too dark outside. He accepts their invitation and goes and eats with them. In Revelation chapter 3, at a sinful church, uh, Jesus stands at the door and knocks and asks to be invited in so that uh, he would eat with them. Uh, it's the nature of Jesus, it's the nature of God to, to welcome others, you know. Uh, part of our hospitality is not only inviting people, but responding to invitations from people who may have no status, uh, or people um, who don't seem to matter in the world. Quite often, when we, even in the case of evangelism, uh, we invite people in so that we may do something for them. Sometimes hospitality, evangelism, requires that we receive the hospitality of others, that we open ourselves uh, and receive from them. Uh, Laura, when we were serving in India, she can bake well, and there was interest in uh, baking, so she would invite women to come to her house to learn how to bake. Uh, some came, but what she found out was she had greater access to them instead of teaching them how to bake. If she would go to their homes and learn how to make uh, the dishes there, she was readily welcomed, and uh, they opened up more to, their, uh, to her than inviting them to our houses. So, so the question for us in terms of hospitality is this, who will we invite to our homes this Thanksgiving. There are the usual people. We have to invite them. <laughs> but who else? People who bring Jesus to us, because Jesus with people is with people like that. So hospitality is, a, uh, is an opportunity to welcome Christ himself when we invite those whom the world does not invite and honor, and to be invited into those places as well. We can be humble and hospitable because God, in the person of his son, humbled himself so that he may be hospitable to us. God has granted us a status of being first, his children. And therefore, we are free to be last in this world. There's no status that this world can convey or bestow upon us or we can yearn for ourselves that compares to the, that which we already have. Jesus starts us out there. When you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. There's no greater honor. There's no greater identity than that. God starts us off on that. We don't have to be pursuing honor uh, in the ways of the world. We can therefore humble ourselves. We can therefore be hospitable to those uh, that the world does not honor, who have no status before the world. And in doing so, we enjoy the presence of God himself. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for... Uh, what you teach us, these are things that the world cannot because the world's ways are completely opposed to yours. But yet we confess that, uh, Father, we are more um, formed by the world than by your word. I pray, Father, that uh, as people who, whom you have loved and therefore who love you and who love your son, help us to follow after him by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following, knowing that there is the joy and the glory of the resurrection that awaits us, uh, even as he walked that path, the way of the cross, uh, in obedience to you, in humbling himself, so that he would be exalted as you have, uh, you said you would. And fathers, we, we, we pray that we would trust you like he did and follow in that same way, being last, because in him we have already been made first. Thank you that you're going to do this in us, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning when we come to this table, 
that we observe uh, on the first Sunday of the month, we come here to enjoy the hospitality of God. And we are able to do this because of the humility of God, whereby He invites you and I, people who have no status before God, uh, people who were once His enemies, but who have been reconciled to Him by His work, not that we took the first step in this reconciliation, by giving us His own Son to take away our sins. This morning, if you have humbled yourself before God, that is, you have accepted that you can't save yourself, you can't build a tower to God, but instead, in humility, you accepted what God offers, that His Son, that He gave His Son to die for us, and, and that He raised His Son from the, from the dead. If we humble ourselves and trust what He has done, we receive His invitation to this table. If you're here this morning, and if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to this table. If you have not, we pray we ask that you consider what God offers in Christ. If you trust in Him today, you too can be saved. You too can be brought into God's family. If you do not have the elements, please keep your hands raised and someone will bring them to you. Even as those who have trusted in Christ, uh, as those who have trusted in Christ, we come to this table with joy, but we also come with reverence. So as believers, we need to be truthful about who we are, and that includes the confession that we do sin. And if we, have, if we say we have no sin, uh, the truth is not in us. God has provided a remedy for believer's sin, that is, if we confess our sins, agree with God that what we had said and done is wrong in his eyes. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Uh, so this morning, take some time to confess your sins before God so that we can together celebrate what Jesus has accomplished for us. Hear the words of the institution of the supper from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's give thanks for the bread that represents the body of Jesus that was broken for our sins. Our Father and our God, because he, his body was broken on that cross for our sins, we are healed. And we are made whole, not just individually, but together as your people. We have been reconciled to you and to each other because Jesus was broken for us. So, Father, we come to this table to remember him through this bread, that uh, in his being broken, we have found healing 
and salvation. Thank you for, our, for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's eat the bread together. It's in the bottom layer of the cup. Let's give thanks for the cup, which represents the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while the, the blood of bulls and lambs can't, can cover sin but can't take it away forever, the blood of your Son does. That in him the perfect sacrifice has been offered. In his death, his, our, our sins are propitiated. Your, your wrath against our sin is propitiated. We thank you for his blood that truly takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Let's drink together this cup that represents the blood of Christ that washes away our sin. After the first time they observed this supper, they gave thanks to God. Let's do the same. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Savior of the world, who has made propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. As those who have received this great and wonderful gift that we remember, we pray that we would also proclaim, even, at, even until he returns, so that even through our proclamation, he will be pleased to draw people to himself, so they too, by faith in Christ, that he died for us and rose again, may be saved and brought into your kingdom as your people. Thank you that you're able to do this, for we ask in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.